probably heard of Chef Gordon Ramsay, Chef Marco Pierre White, and if you live in the Bay Area, you have probably heard of Chef David Lawrence. All of these prolific chefs have worked in infamous French restaurants, all owned by the Rue brothers, and the most well-known, Le Gavrache, a place that shaped many great chefs in the world. It was started by Michel Rue, a French-born chef, and his older brother, who lifted the fine dining industry in London and took fine dining to a whole new level in the late 1960s. They were the first restaurant that earned three Michelin stars in London. It was a sunny day on April 7th this year, and Governor Gavin Newsom just made the announcement that California would be opening back up this June. Susan, Jay, and I had lunch at his friend's restaurant in the financial district, Piperod. We have a lovely conversation on the patio with the one and only Chef David Lawrence. He has a magical path that starts his career here as chef de cuisine at the iconic 231 Ellsworth in San Mateo, where all of the biggest meetings in Silicon Valley took place. After a remarkable arc working in many restaurants in SF, he proudly opened his own restaurant in 2007 called 1300 Fillmore. A very elegant white tablecloth specializing in soulful American cuisine, combining his French cooking techniques with West Indian and Southern flavors. Which you're about to find out was influenced by all of his personal experiences and family roots. Check out our rare opportunity to speak with Chef David Lawrence about his life as a San Francisco chef. Susan Brown. I'm Michaela Joy O'Shea. And I'm Jay Yee. You're listening to Beyond the Fog Radio. Our podcast about the untold stories of San Francisco's long history from the people that have helped shape it. Whether you're new to San Francisco or have lived here your entire life, join us as we share the stories of our city by the bay. You don't realize how influential you are on yeah. people until they, they turn around and tell you years yeah, later. Yeah, you have you know, no idea. You have no idea. It's like with me, with cooks and chefs that I've come in my pathway and I've basically beaten up. Yeah. And then years later, they go, oh my God, thank God you were that strict with me. Now look at me, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm doing that. Thank you very much, chef. I really appreciate what you do. Isn't that great? Oh my God. And you, you're doing what's right for the restaurant, you're doing what's right for them at the time, because it's just right to do. But in the back of your mind, you're not thinking, oh yeah, in a few years' time, I'm developing these great people who are going to come back and thank me. It doesn't enter your mind until it happens. You're like, oh wow. I did. And you don't do it for the thank you. No. No, of course not. not. You You're do doing it. it for the restaurant right, right, right now. Then, right now. <laughs> Screw you. <No>. Yeah. <laughs> Screw your future. <laughs> no, no. I'm just kidding. No, I know. No, but you're doing it for that. And no, these absolutely. are the ramifications of what you do and the influences. Yeah. I tell people all the time, I grew up in England. My parents were both immigrants from Jamaica. And they met over there and I, and I came about. And they separated when I was really young. I was raised by my father. And I, I remember wanting a pair of shoes. I had holes in my shoes. And my dad, well, you know, on the weekend, son, I can buy his shoes. I can't buy them now. At the moment, I don't have enough money. Put some newspapers, put in there, you know. And walking to the school in England with, shoe, with holes in my shoes. And it's, England rains all the time. Right. Socks are wet and all that. I'm like, oh, my God. My dad buys me not one pair of shoes, but three pairs of shoes. Wow. He buys me platform shoes that 
you seen how tall I am? Yes. Do I look like I need platform <laughs> shoes? Okay. And at the time, platform shoes were going out. Penny, um, penny loafers were coming in. Oh, the platform shoes were going out and the penny loafers were coming in? Yeah, so he, that's why they were so cheap. And so he bought three of them and gave them to me. I'm like, Dad, I can't go to school like that. that. He was like, son, this is what I could afford and this is what I bought. And this is what you're going to wear. I went, okay. <laughs> so my dad's girlfriend at the time looks at me and goes, oh, you don't like those shoes. I'm like, no, they're going to all laugh at me. Well, you need to get a job. Went and got me a job up the road in a poor neighborhood working in a carpet store for, uh, for a, a couple called Jack and Rita. They were immigrants. And they had a carpet store there. And they, you know, they said, he needs a job. And he goes, okay. And he paid me a pound, 50 on a Saturday. And I worked every Saturday. Wow. And then summer holidays come. I worked every summer holidays. The summer holidays, I, that little store in that neighborhood, I didn't realize, delivered to some of the richest neighborhoods in all of London. Oh, wow. All of London. Like Bishop's Avenue is like the most famous street in London at that time. And I walked into some of those houses and I thought, oh my God, people live like that? Wow. So then it gave me the appetite to go and achieve and want to aspire to be like that. And that's what influences. You always have to have influences in your life. Yeah. To get you to aspire to be better than what you, you think you can be. Exactly. And that's what happened for me. So how did you become a chef? So I became a chef. Like I said, my mom and dad separated when I was really young. And so my dad was, was a chef. And so um, not all the time, but he picked it up. And so I was at home uh, with my brother. And I couldn't wait for my dad to come home to cook. So I started cooking and preparing meals at home at a very young age. You know, I'm, I'm talking about 10, 11 years old. Uh, I started doing that. And then at, in England at the age of 13... They basically go, you're coming back at 14, you're going to set up your classes for what you want to do. So you're going to go to university and stuff like that. They're going to set up your classes so that you can go to university. If you're going to go to vocational school, they're going to set up your classes so that you go to vocational school. I, I wanted to cook. I, they told me what I wanted to do. Yeah. I was very lucky. I knew what I wanted to do at the age of 13. Very few, very, very few people know that. And so I was like, I said, I want to be a chef. And I went, okay, you're going to take French. I'm like, French? I can hardly speak English. You're going to take French? Yeah, you're going to take French. And then you go, you do, you're going to do chemistry. I'm like, chemistry? Are you kidding me? You're like, yeah, you're going to do that. And then uh, and you do cooking. I went, cooking? I went, yeah, great. And then it was even better. I got into the class. There was only one other guy and all these girls in there. So I was like, yeah, that's for me. And so I got in there. I remember the first thing I ever did was like a, a salmon envelope. Uh-huh. Basically, took a salmon, puff pastry, made a white parsley sauce, put it in there, put the salmon, fold it over, and baked it in the oven. And I brushed it with a, like a milk glaze on top of it, and it came out perfect. This is in high school? Yeah. This is 1975. It's amazing. Yeah. I was like 14 years old. Wow. And that came out, and the teacher goes, wow, David, that's really good. And I yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> and immediately, you, you do something, you do it well. You're like, wow, this is for me. And that's how I got into cooking. And I started doing that. Doing that. I remember uh, Jack and Rita wanted me to come and work for them after I finished school. And I said, no, I'm going to be a chef. I want to do that. And they'd known me for all those years as a, from a young boy doing that, helping them out. 
they just said, okay, then you need to start writing letters to all the best restaurants and hotels. And they helped me write letters. Wow. That's fantastic. I went, it's sweet of them, you know? And they went from wanting me to stay and help them run the business and be with them to, like, help me try and get to my dreams. And so, for, uh, forward a few more years, I basically lied my way into the best restaurant company in all of England called the Rue Brothers, R-O-U-X. Yeah. And people will go, who are the Rue's? And I said, well, Albert Rue and Michel Rue, they're the godfathers of cooking in England. I said, the most famous alumni is Gordon Ramsay. He, that's where he learned, at the Rue Brothers. So um, there's many, many more in Europe, especially in England, who have, who have worked there and they trained there. And everybody in, in England knows the Rue Brothers. In Europe, they know them very well. And most people in the culinary industry in, in America knows them. But yeah, Gordon Ramsay's their most uh, famous alumni. Next to me, of course. <laughs> they just haven't discovered me yet. <laughs> Oh, well, everyone knows about you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Infamous Lawrence, Chef Lawrence. But that's how I, I got in there, and I uh, started working for them for five years. Yeah. And in that five years, I got to work at La Gavroche for two years, which was the only three-star Michelin restaurant in England at the time. Right. And these are 20-hour days. 20-hour days. So, complete sacrifice. You're just immersed in cooking for two years in the Gavroche. And I think I missed two days in those two years at the Gavroche because every day you learn something new. And I remember um, basically Albert was like, wow, you must have been really sick because you never miss a day. And no, I just, that was my opportunity. And you seize it and you want to be there all the time. Yeah, we talked about that. Yeah, oh God. And I just never wanted to, I never wanted not to be there. It was, it was hard work. I remember being there. And I remember after the first few months, I got to Friday, because it was a Monday to Friday, we were closed Saturday and Sunday, and I got to Friday lunchtime, and I was like, oh my God, I don't know if I can make it for the rest of the day. I was so tired. And then Saturday, Sunday comes, you sleep basically all day Saturday. You wake up, have some food, go back to bed. And then Sunday, you sleep all half the day, and you wake up, you go and wash your, wash your uniforms and all that, get them all ready, watch some TV, and then went back to bed, and then you got ready for it. And then I think with after nearly two years, I, I remember getting there on the Monday morning and doing Monday morning lunch and got looking up and I'm like, oh my God, I don't think I can make it for the whole week. <laughs> but you're young, you, you do. You know, you're, yeah. I, was, I, was, I got there when I was 19, 20 years old and did two years there. I got out when I was 22. Amazing. And stayed with them for a bit longer and then went and worked for um, an, another restaurant, which was an old Rue restaurant. Much to Albert's annoyance, he wanted me to do some other things with him, but I, it was time for me to break that cord, you know. I wanted to see what else was out there. And we're to the place called the, um, the Interlude, which was right, right next door to the um, Royal Opera House. And while I was there, I got to cook for Prince Charles, Lady Diana, wow. Margaret Thatcher, the Bolshoi Ballet was there. All these dignitaries used to come there, and I would cook for them. And I remember when Diana came and I, I got to cook for her and they came down and special services came over, you know, the police and all that. And I remember they said, okay. And they checked us all out and they said, your sous chef can't work here. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'll need my sous chef. And he's like, Chef Lawrence, he cannot work here. Not that night. <laughs> and he said it in a way, I'm like, oh, okay. So I go, what's up? Why can't you work? He said, well, my mum and dad are from Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, and okay. Because, yeah, I think yeah. they had affiliations with the IRA. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I went, oh, yeah. goes, don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. And so they checked you out. And th that was a lot of fun working there. I got to work in my first restaurant. 
and they become my first, well, not my first restaurant, but my first head chef's job in a restaurant in England. And I was doing really well, and I'd go back and show Albert all my recipes, all my menus, and uh, read in French, and show you like, I always knew you would do well, my boy. And so he basically counted on me coming back to work for him, because um, by this time I had a girlfriend who was working for him, and he, in his mind I was going to come back and work for him eventually. But once they had me, they were closing for business. And at that time, to get a Rue Restaurant trained chef, it was almost like printing money. Because basically you said, I have a Rue Restaurant trained chef here. Come and eat. And everybody would come. And they had to close for renovations. And I had just got there. And they said, well, we're closing renovations. We're going to pay you. We're going to pay you while we're away. But you come back after a few weeks. Well, okay. So at the time, me and my girlfriend decided to come to America. Because we had some British friends who we knew, who I knew, uh, since I was a kid. And actually the mother of my friends uh, married a Scottish guy. I did a wedding cake for them at 17. So that was five years previous. I had done the wedding cake for them five, six years previous. And my first wedding cake and my only wedding cake, it was it looked gorgeous. <laughs> absolutely gorgeous. But, you know, it, was, it felt like a brick inside. Yeah. <laughs> I was not proud of how it tastes. <laughs> but it looked gorgeous. Anyway, so um, she left and came to America. And one by one, her kids came over and her kids were my friends. You know, school friends, friends that I knew, cousins and all that. We were a very close family. And they kept saying, come to America, come to America. I'm like, no, nah, come. I'm like, okay, let's get this out of the way. I got this opportunity where they pay me to be on vacation. I can go to America. And I came out in 1986. And I came to San Francisco. And I, I, I truly believe if I'd gone anywhere else, I would have gone right back to England. But right. San Francisco, is, it's, a, it's a magical city. Absolutely magical city. Yes, it is. It is. Coming from England, coming over here, it's like, it's like Disneyland. It's like Technicolor. It's just like all this. <laughs> just the riches of colors. The colors of trees and buildings and the light. The sky is just richer over right. here compared to England. And then I started going and looking at the food and the produce. And I was like blown away. Everything tastes better. Everything looked better. Everything felt better. And so that blew me away. And then I went to restaurants. And restaurants in England would be at 11 o'clock at night. You're getting a load of people still coming in. You're working till 1 o'clock in the morning. Whereas over here, I noticed restaurants at 10, 10.30, they're closing. They're getting quiet. I'm like, oh, my God. And the chefs have a life <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> compared to England. And uh, we worked in England, you know, in a restaurant. You worked double shifts. You worked in the morning. You worked at night. You did double shifts. We're in, uh, over here, you did a shift. You worked morning, you worked night. If you choose to go and get another job in somewhere else and work at night time, that was your choice. But it wasn't a part of the job. And so there was all these things going for it. But the, the, the nail that was in the, you know, kind of was in the coffin that kind of made me really decide to come here was we went to the Marriott Hotel at the airport. My, my British friends and I took me there. And we were having a drink. And this cocktail waitress is staring at me. And my girlfriend's going, why is she looking at you like that? I said, I think I know her. She said, no way. And she comes start walking over to me and starts talking. She goes, David, what are you doing here? I go, I'm here on vacation. Terry, what are you doing here? She says, I live here. And we worked together in London, five weeks, five weeks only. And um, she had left, she had worked for the Gavroche, well, for the Rue Brothers, and worked in one of their restaurants called Gavas, where I was a sous chef at that time. Her boyfriend basically had replaced me at the Gavroche. And I had gone back the next day after I left to take a picture of everybody, so I had a keepsake. And in this picture was this one guy going, 
in the face. And I'm like, oh, God, he must be the new guy. That was her boyfriend. Anyway, so she goes, my boyfriend, he's opened a restaurant in San Mateo. I'm like, really, where's that? <laughs> it's around the corner. <laughs> you know? And I go, oh, okay. Then, no, no, you've got to meet him. You've got to meet him. So five minutes later, he comes down. And I look at him, I'm like, oh, my God, I have a picture of you. He goes, you do? I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I went back and I explained what happened. He said, anyway, besides that, you've got to come and work for me. <laughs> and uh, he was begging me to come and work for him, Kirk Grayson. And we're, he was opening a restaurant called 231 Ellsworth in San Mateo. And I said, well, I've got to go back to London. I'm going back to London. I've got to go over there and I have a job over there. And I'll, I'll tell them I'm leaving and I'll come back. And he goes, oh, yeah, you've got to come over. We're going to open a restaurant end of this year. This was like in August. I went back to England, and my girlfriend was like, we're not moving over there. I said, yes, we are. <laughs> I went back, and I told him I was leaving. And he said, no, you can't leave. We need you. We need you to stay. And I'm like, they go, whatever you want, you can have. And I didn't want the job anymore. And I basically said, I threw out, I want 30000 more and a company car. And I'm walking away like, this is never going to happen. Chefs don't get this, especially in the 80s. And they went, okay. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> they went, okay. <laughs> wow. And so I went, oh, okay. So I had to stay. And I called Kirk up. I said, I'm coming, but I can't come yet. He said, you get over there as soon as you can. And anyway, I stayed a, a little bit longer. And um, I stayed a year um, longer. I stayed um, 18 months in total. And I told them I was leaving. And they were like, whatever you want. <laughs> you can have. I was like, no, 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 I'm not doing that again. Anyway, I get a phone call from the Royal Opera House. And the manager of the Royal Opera House, a nice guy, he says, David, I heard you're leaving. Yeah, yeah, I made up my mind. I said, okay, I know you've made up your mind, but I want to show you something. Tomorrow morning, meet me outside in your civvies, in your clothes, at 10.30. I want to show you something. So he has a limo. He puts me in the car and he says, oh, yeah, America's good and all that. There's some opportunities over here. He takes me over to Canary Wharf, which is a new development, which is huge now over there. He takes me over there, and he, there's this big ship on the dock there. And I'm going up the gangplank, and I'm getting inside, and I'm looking in, and it's a restaurant. <laughs> the penny hasn't dropped yet. <laughs> and I'm looking, wow, this is a cool little restaurant. Wow, God, this is going to be great. Walk in, I go in the kitchen, full-on kitchen on this boat. Like, wow. This is amazing. Who's going to be the chef here? <laughs> he goes, you, it's your restaurant <laughs> if you stay. Are you kidding? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> this is it. I went and I went. I took two gulps of it. <laughs> and I said, uh, thank you. But no, thank you. I've made up my mind. <laughs> I told him I was coming to America. I'm going to America. He said, okay, I understand. He said, you go over there. It doesn't work out within a year. This is still here for you. <laughs> Restaurant chefs, they really wanted you, you know. That's so nice. Yeah. And the rest is history. I came over and I've been here ever since. Wow. 33 years. Wow. March 10th. So what was your first restaurant that you opened? The first restaurant that I got involved in was 231 Ellsworth in San Mateo uh, with Kirk Grayson. And we were down there for four years and we were known as the best restaurant in the city that wasn't in the city. And we had a tremendous amount of success down there. It was Tony, myself, a pastry chef called Phil O'Geller was amazing. Kirk Grayson, it just amazing people there. Staff-wise, uh, waiters, front of house. Just, it was just a magical time that 
was in this little town producing this great food and Hillsburg was right next door to us. You weren't expecting that food in, in that city. And what happened was a lot of the deals for Silicon Valley, people would fly in uh, at the airport right there. And they would say, oh, meet us at 231 Ellsworth. And they would come up and meet in our restaurant and do the deals in our restaurant. And it was, a, it was a lot of fun there. And I just remember being there and learning to cook and Kirk teach me about baseball. <laughs> and I'd be telling well, why is he throwing the ball three times and he's not out? <laughs> I thought it was three strikes. Well, he said, he didn't throw the ball within the strike zone. There's a strike zone? <laughs> How big is the strike zone? Well, it depends on the umpire. It's not uniformed? <laughs> well, it should be, but it isn't. <laughs> so he's explaining all this to me. So I was like a kid in a candy store listening to all this. I learned baseball and, I, you know, I have some statistics and some, some knowledge about baseball that people are always shocked about. That How does this British Jamaican guy know about baseball? And that's all because of Kirk Grayson talking to me about it. And that was there. And also, you've got to remember, that's the 49ers. They won the first year while I was there. They won the next year. And then I was at the championship game. And I was like, what do you mean we lost? <laughs> Don't we always win? <laughs> Couldn't understand. Couldn't compute. <laughs> and uh, also, I remember going to my first football game where we were playing against the, um, the um, Green Bay Packers. And I walked in and my friend goes, all right, sit there. I said, there's a Green Bay Packer sitting right next to us. He said, yeah, yeah, sit next to him. We can do that? <laughs> because in England, the supporters are separated, especially in soccer, football. Right. He goes, yeah, you can do that. I said, we're not going to fight him? <laughs> no, we don't do that over here. That's the Raiders. <laughs> the Warriors don't do that. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> but I looked at him with one eye. It's <laughs> still for the whole game, expected to get, break into a fight. It never happened. I was like, wow, this is amazing. I was completely indoctrinated with the culture, the sport, the food, the lifestyle, and quickly adopted to it and just fell in love with it. And never went back. Oh, it's so great. Oh, yeah. What a great time to grow up as an adult in San Francisco. Oh, I think it was one of the, I think the 80s in San Francisco is a magical time. I'm sure people talk about the 70s as a period that they felt was a great time to be there. And the changes in the 60s that was happening there. Later on, we opened a restaurant called 1300 on Fillmore. And I, it was just great to see these people from all, all walks of life who stood together, walked together, and had stories about the 60s and their fights during the 60s. And they were able to, as elderly statesmen, I don't want to say old people, to reminisce about that and be in a restaurant such as 1300 and be able to talk about that. San Francisco is unique. It's completely unique. And to me, it's, it's the most European city in, in America. A lot of people say oh, that about San Francisco. Yeah. I go to New York, and don't get me wrong, I have fun in New York. I would never live there. It's like living in London. I've been to Chicago. I like Chicago, but oh, the winters, it'd, it'd kill me. San Francisco is just perfect. It is perfect. It's perfect. You have a subway, you have the trolley, you have the restaurants, you, you have the weather, you have the hills. It's just like being in a European city, like being in America. It just was, for me, it was perfect. 1300 was truly my, one of my favorite restaurants. Thank you. I mean, it's so beautiful. You walk in, you see all of the African-American history on yeah. the walls, and the food was delicious. 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 Well, 1300 was something that was in my mind from a very early age. You know, every chef who gets into the business wants to open up his own restaurant. And not every chef is 
privileged enough to have that honor to be able to be in a situation where they can. So when 1300 was something that wasn't just something that was in the back of my mind and we were able to, to be able to produce it, it was a golden opportunity. It was a labor of love for myself and my wife, Manetta. And so we poured a lot of of history into that place, a lot of love and a lot of knowledge into that place. I had worked at the top of my field, so I brought that in there. Manetta was new, was born and raised in San Francisco, and she was the one who introduced me to African American cuisine at a very early stage in our relationship. And what I saw there was very similar to what we had in West Indian cuisine. It was the same kind of cuts of meat. It was the ones that don't cost as much. Uh, there was no filet mignon in, in West Indian cuisine. <laughs> it was the low end of the hog. And so you have to make something with that. And so, but I was able to bring my, my freestyle, Michelin, European, French training to that and also incorporate my West Indian upbringing and bring an African-American experience to that. So whereas I was able to produce dishes like the shrimp and grits at, at that restaurant, it was unlike any other shrimp and grits I've ever tasted in this country. But that came from evolutions of experiences and of not just cuisines, but lifestyles and countries that came into that. And it was uniquely 1300. So we brought, we'd, uh, we were very proud of 1300. We were able to bring an African-American experience but come from a different angle that was never no one else had ever seen or ever done before and made it that's what made it unique and gave you tastes that you'll never taste in another restaurant exactly you know so that was that that that's what made 1300 um, so well loved and then to have a restaurant like that and have a space like that we wanted it to be on the same scale as any fine dining restaurant that was in san francisco i don't care where you go in I didn't want it to be in a hole-in-the-wall restaurant. Unfortunately for us, people of color, we don't have that kind of income that comes to us to able us to open up a restaurant like 1300, and not just the income, but the knowledge to put it on that scale. And we were lucky enough to be in that situation to be able to put a, a restaurant at that scale, the luxury of that restaurant, yes. the feel of that restaurant. And we had, I had been to many, many restaurants. I, I remember going to Soul Cafe, which was a restaurant that was very famous in the 90s. And they were building up restaurants in New York, Chicago, and there was one in LA I went to, and they were doing very well. But they were destined to not do well because they weren't thinking about the food. It became a bar place, I remember being in there. And if you remember in, at 1300, there was a division between the bar and the restaurant. That's right. And the reason we had that there was because I was in the Soul Cafe in LA and the bar and the restaurant, there was no division. And the bar kept bunching, bumping up against my wife. <laughs> and I several times to ran to several guys like, hey guys, can you not hit into my wife? And they were very apologetic, but it gets crowded, they would do. Those are the little things that we picked up on and we wanted to have in there. We wanted to have a great experience in there, but the food was number one. It had to be memorable. It had to be the thing that you came there for because that gives it longevity. If it's just a bar, a bar will open up anywhere. And the crowd that goes to the new bar here, as soon as another bar opens up, they're all gone over there and they leave you. But if you have food and the food is of quality and consistently good, I hope to think that we produced that 1300 
people came back there and they would come back there multiple times because they felt comfortable, they knew that they could bring their guests, they could bring their family, they can come for special occasions, birthdays, anniversaries. We had uh, Thanksgiving there, we had Easter there, Christmas Day there. These were special occasions. They knew they were getting something consistently well. Uh, and they can come there on a Monday in the pouring rain in February and knew they were going to get some good food in there. And that's what we strived for. And uh, I think we achieved. Yeah, no, he definitely achieved it in stride. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, so delicious. Yeah, uh, yeah. Very proud of that place. Very proud of what we achieved at 1300. Unfortunately, we're closed now, but uh, it's, I think it's left a, a mark in San Francisco's history. Absolutely has. us a little bit about across the street you opened a, a barbecue place so while i was on on fillmore street i was i used to walk up and down the street and there was little placards on the road in the, in the pavement there saying this date da, 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 were there. anyway so i looked down one day and i saw a placard designating that there was a barbecue there and they named the barbecue place i can't remember what it was and i'm like oh my god there was barbecue on um on fillmore was it leon's I think it was, yeah, yeah. Leon's. Anyway, so someone said, yeah, yeah, there was up there, up the road there, you know, uh, where I think it was where SPQR is, or there's about. And they said, yeah, yeah, we had barbecue there for quite a while. I'm like, really? Oh, wow. We got to bring something back. We were vested in the neighborhood. We had 1,300. We were like, we're not going anywhere. Let's put a barbecue place in. So we talked to the Fillmore Center across the road and about doing that. And they said, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And we put it in, we invested in there. And I went to Austin, Texas, and, uh, and trained down there. We used to do the um, gospel every Sunday. And the singers at the gospel, their parents were into barbecue. The dad, actually, he, they, they lived here, and he worked for a, a car company down in, uh, in East Bay. Anyway, the company, I can't remember the name of the company, it closed. And he went and retired in Texas, and he opened up a barbecue place there. And so they said, you need to talk to my mom, uh, you know, about barbecue. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, you know, being the big chef and who's going to talk to me about food, you know, I know what I'm doing. They said, no, 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 you should talk to my mom. I'm like, yeah, 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 I'll talk to her. And, you know, went on, went on and went on. And finally, the guy goes, you need to talk to my mom. I'm like, okay, <laughs> give me her number. So I gave her a call. And uh, she goes, yeah, you open a barbecue place. I go, yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to fly out and see what you're doing. And I'm like, oh, I'll send you a ticket. Well, okay. So she comes in, and I'm like showing her my recipes and all that. And she's one of these old black ladies, a real mom, mother. And she has the glasses, the half cut glasses. And she has one of those. I'm like, what do you think? What do you think? And she goes, bless your heart. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I've learned when an old black lady says, bless your heart, yeah. <laughs> it's not a good thing. That's, that's hilarious. <laughs> She's about to slap you. <laughs> she said, this is good, but we need to bring it up a scale. Uh, oh, we do? <laughs> she goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to add this and add that and that. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I'm boom, 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 boom. And then we put it on a taste. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> so she just took my barbecue recipes and she put them on steroids, wow. basically. And um, improved them tremendously. And then we, we opened up Black Bark Barbecue. And uh, I remember the name, even the name uh, Black Bark. We, we had a, a 
a focus session on that and people like like the, the name Black Bart. And I didn't like it because, you know, come from England, Black Bart sounds like a pirate a pirate, you know, black bark, black bark. <laughs> they go like, no, no, David, it, this is great. And uh, it was, it turned out to be a great name. The issue we have with black bark, everybody loved it within seconds. It was delicious. It was delicious. And we became top 25 in the country, best new barbecue in California. Uh, you know, we were just getting at rave reviews. But the problem we had was that 75% of the food was to go, which doesn't sound that bad. But when you're teamed up with these delivery service companies who take 30% of, the, of your money, there's no way you can make money. With these delivery apps that you or everybody orders through, right. they are killing restaurants. They take too much money out of the restaurants to deliver the food. I had no idea. No one, no one realizes. Very few people realize. So you imagine you open your business and then you have someone to go out there and promote your business and they take 30% of your business and already you're on such small margins. Most restaurants, if they can do 5% profit, they're, they're, they're doing well. So someone turns right. around and takes 30%. Everything you do, you're losing money. And, and if you have deep pockets, you can do it for a while because... You can chalk it up to advertising and get the word out and stuff like that. We just didn't have the deep enough pockets to do that. So, and, uh, and on top of that, no one wanted to walk down there. They still were uh, somewhat cautious about walking in the neighborhood. So, so most of it was to go. Most of the business was to go over there. And uh, I had to make a decision to close the place. And that's why that's what happened. We did three years and then we had to close it. Oh, I didn't realize that's what happened. Yeah weren't making enough money and so I looked to uh, open it and tried to open it up in other places there was a space that I liked uh, further down on Fillmore down in the uh, marina and we lost out on that space and there's a couple other spaces but just didn't make the right sense for us and so unfortunately I've just not found the space to be able to do that to bring that back then now we've had the pandemic so yeah, I have to think really, really strongly about whether we're going to come back as a brick and mortar place. Yeah, maybe more in a ghost kitchen, have them produce it that way, and and bring it back that way. So that's what I've been working on. It's great. You you mentioned ghost kitchen. Yeah, that's like you can see more and more people pivoting into some type of ghost kitchen delivery thing. Is that going to be the future? But let's, let's find out what a ghost kitchen is, because a lot of people don't know, and I, I, I'm not clear what it is. So basically what a ghost kitchen is, is it's like a factory for, a rest, for restaurants. So basically you have a kitchen that allows multitudes of restaurants to cook out of. It could be 1300, it could be Black Bark, it could be SPQR, or whatever. They're all cooking out there in the same kitchen, using the one kitchen to cook out of. So it saves you a lot of cost there, because you're coming out of one kitchen. And you may use the same stuff, you may not. You know, you bring your own stuff in, you pick a period where you come and cook in there, and then you leave. And so it's a very efficient way of cooking. And then you have to figure out how to package your food so that you can deliver it in a manner that it looks fresh, and it looks like it's restaurant quality. And most of these ghost kitchens have, have been able to pivot to that and, and do that in a way that has kept a lot of restaurants going during this, this period. Obviously, you have to pick out 
certain foods that can travel well for me like braised items travel well roast chicken barbecue travels well uh, things like that french fries don't travel well <laughs> it just doesn't they get they get there they're soggy so you have to pick the items that can travel well and and best represent you and then from there you have to decide who you want it to go to and who's going to deliver it a lot of these ghost kitchens have been staying open and have been doing business with offices that have stayed open and delivered to those formats or they've done food and they package food and they deliver them to your whole foods or to stores like that and that's what ghost kitchens have done i think in the world i think the the place that does it the best is india and they've been doing it for years where they provide food in these kitchens and um, then they deliver foods in these little metal containers and boxes and stuff and they deliver them to offices and people eat them and so it's like i said the ghost kitchens are new to us but it's not new to the world india's been doing it for many many years and been doing it very very well and that's basically what a ghost kitchen is it just provides food of many different concepts and it delivers it to whoever wants to buy it so that's how the restaurants during the pandemic have survived? No, I would say 50% of restaurants during the pandemic have gone. They've just gone. They're not coming back. And those are reasons because of the pandemic and, and other reasons. So the pandemic was last, the last nail in the, in the coffin that got rid of them. Most restaurants that had deep enough pockets stayed open and they pivoted and they did delivery or you came in there, you can pick up food. Or they turned around and made their cellars into wine shops and they were able to sell wine. Or they were able to make cocktails and put them to bottles. And then you could come in and get a cocktail already mixed, bottled up, and you could get a meal. A lot of restaurants did that. It wasn't profitable, but it kept the lights on. It kept people working. And then the PPP came along and helped out with those restaurants as well. But most of those restaurants survived. They had very deep pockets or they had very understanding landlords. And so not to make out like landlords are the bad guys or anything like that, because a lot of the buildings people have just bought and they had mortgages to pay as well. So they couldn't put down the rents. And there were some people who could, but they didn't believe that they needed to. So this is what has happened. A lot of things have contributed to the downfall of these restaurants. But the pandemic came along and it just pushed them over the edge. Pre-pandemic, restaurants were closing anyway. They were closing on a big scale, on a historic scale, because there were just too many restaurants in San Francisco. Way too many. And then there just was no staff as well. Staff were moving away. The cost of doing business in San Francisco was just too much. It was a problem before the pandemic came. Pandemic was the thing that just like, okay. It made a lot of people who were just trying to stay open make that decision that it's just doesn't make sense to do business anymore and they closed yeah so they were done they were done this was just the, the the straw that broke the camel's back so what do you think the steps are going to be to get the restaurants back here and things back open well obviously everybody got, has got to get vaccines <laughs> you know not be scared of doing that and and then we've got to get people back in the city you know what do, i'm hearing numbers like forty thousand people left the city so you're just gonna get people back not only in other industries, but especially in the restaurant industries, where you, a lot of these chefs have left. They've gone. So even if you want to open up your restaurant, where are you going to find your staff? So you have to find them right. and get them to come back. So this is not going to open up overnight. These restaurants are just not going to just switch a switch and they're going to be back in the heydays. That's just not going to happen. And so it's going to take a while. It's going to take, but it's going to take a while to bounce back. 
And so slowly but surely, it's going to do this. And you're going to see these restaurants, they're going to take small steps, like my friend here, uh, Gerard, he's opened up his restaurant, and it's, you know, baby steps, baby steps. And hopefully he'll survive. And a lot of these restaurants will reopen, they may not survive. Then, they, you know, you always have one or two come along, like, I can do it, I'm better than everybody. And they'll come in, and they'll, they will do it, and they'll get... They'll, you know, they'll survive or they'll, you know, they have deep enough pockets to survive this. It's all about what you've got in the bank. <laughs> can you do it? Yeah, can you survive this? And can you renegotiate leases? You know, if you can renegotiate leases, get cheaper leases, and this is the time to do it. Because they're just not going to be restaurateurs to fill in these spaces. And so these spaces are going to be empty. I remember when I first got into this business back in London and and I worked in a place in Piccadilly and it's small little it wasn't small it was a huge restaurant I remember going behind and seeing another part of the restaurant so the restaurant was only a third of what it actually was <laughs> and the rest of the space had cut down so you know the 70s in London was not a very good period for London and so it had taken a good 10-15 years for London to come back from the heyday of the 60s to 80, 84, 85 in London to start booming again. So I'm not saying that's going to happen over here, but it's going to take a period of time. It really is to start building it all up again. And, but the beauty of over here in America is that it, it goes through these cycles and it does, it does rebound and it always does. And a city like San Francisco where you have a beautiful climate, you have a beautiful city, that people want to be here. So they will come back. They can go off to Texas, they can go off to Florida, but they will come back, you know. Where else do you want to live? Climate like this, people like this. Come on. Best city in the country. What do you think about the future of fine dining in San Francisco? Well, fine dining, there will always be people who want that, but I think it, it hit its pinnacle and it's dropped now, and slowly people will start to appreciate that again. I won't open a restaurant and a fine dining restaurant. It won't happen for me. No more? No. But I think that five, ten years down the road, people will want that again. You know, you know when I opened up 30, um, Black Bark Barbecue, I opened it because of the, climate, the economy. Because I, like, I wanted to do barbecue. But it had these, it had these uh, parameters that was good for business. Basically, I was able to put food on a tray that didn't break. I didn't have to have a lot of people to serve it, so I didn't have to cost one as much. And so I was moving away from dining like that. The wave of everything was going that way. And so now San Francisco is even worse. So to get fine dining to come back is going to be the last one to come back. What are you going to do next? Ooh. <laughs> or what are you thinking about doing? I have one or two things in my mind that I want to do. Let's just say, stand by. Okay, we will. <laughs> we'll stand, we'll you stand know. by and get excited. Okay. Exactly. Chef David Lawrence is one of the kindest, most gracious, most charming, and funny as the day is long human beings. His life has been magical, international, and lovely. He is so disarming and a great storyteller. Yeah, and over the years, I had the opportunity to work with him as one of my clients in the fitness industry. And throughout our time together, we would spend so much time him talking about 
the work he does with his uh, staff and how he loves to mentor people and mine with the staff that I'm building in my businesses. And what I love most about him is his passion for people above his food. His food is phenomenal, by the way. But the, his passion for people to make sure that everyone that he interacts with are left better. And you can hear throughout his story about all of the different opportunities, all of the people that cared for him and looked after him from his early days to all the way to Albert and Michel. I just model and aspire to be the kind of mentor for the people that I work with. It's just great to have him as a friend and someone that we got a chance to talk to. How about you, Michaela? I'm right there with you, Jay. I also think his approach to restaurants and hospitality and being about the people is very much what I'm all about as well. And what we are all, all of us are, are about, right? And what this podcast is all about. It's about coming together and, and mentoring and building community with people. And that was really amazing to hear all of these great stories. He's such an amazing storyteller. And to sit and have a meal cooked by his buddy <laughs> at Piperod, and then to listen to him talk about being British. My family's also British, so it was fun to talk about tea and the crown and the queen. And I just really loved meeting him. He's absolutely a delightful human. It was such a treat. It was such a treat. I, I could have stayed for the, oh, we, we stayed for three hours, but I could have stayed for even longer. <laughs> so that brings it's us true. to next week. Next week, we, we begin our Asian American Pacific Islander series. And we have an interview with David Lay, who talked to us about Chinatown's history, which is so fascinating and so deep. So please join us for that. Yeah, it's going to be a good one. Oh, it's going to be so good. So make sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And please, please, please make sure to subscribe and tell your friends about this podcast. We want everybody to hear about it. And uh, that's all. Just subscribe, people. Really, like really subscribe. Thank you. <laughs> Beyond the Fog Radio is available on Google, Spotify, and Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Fog Radio. And until next time, we'll see you next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.